0: And, uh, when I saw that song on the, uh, on the playlist this morning, I, uh, that has just been one of my favorite Christmas songs because we play it a lot, even though it applies well beyond Christmas. And, uh, listen, I'm so glad you're here this morning. And, uh, Uh, If you're joining us online, welcome, and thank you for uh, joining our service, for everyone in the room, so uh, thankful you're here, and um, if you've been around our church at all, you know exactly where to turn in your Bible. If you're newer um, to our church, or this is your first time, uh, get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've been um, in this series called Kingdom Culture, working slowly through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this has had so much for us. And we've been just soaking in this culture that Jesus communicates. And this culture is one that, for us to rightly understand it, it uh, leads us to flourishing and wholeness. Uh, Within the gospel, within our identity in Christ. And uh, man, we just need that. And I have found my own heart literally um, sort of tenderized, would be the best word. Uh, Sometimes that can be a violent reality to get there, but um, that's what I think God wants to do in our hearts and our souls. And so I'm just going to ask God to lead us there this morning. So let me pray. God, thank you for uh, your truth this morning. And. God, I thank you for um, the beauty of how you are the God who enters right into brokenness and right into uh, places of pain and suffering and sorrow, and uh, God, you give us an anchor in that, and uh, you want to do an amazing work of restoration and reconciliation and redemption. But Father, sometimes the realities of winters we don't get to predict um, what the season holds. And so as we talk about a subject that has impacted so much of us, uh, so many of our lives, I pray, God, that you would speak clearly uh, through me as I want to be compassionate and loving uh, to our church family and lead us forward in truth um, to honor you in all things. And so we just trust you in that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Some people have joked with me over the um, past two weeks about the um, way that the Sermon on the Mount has sort of gone, and then it sort of coincided with Christmas, the Christmas season. And so, you know, they've said, wow, these past two messages and the one coming today, um, it's just interesting that's around Christmas. It's like, hey, welcome to Christ Church. During this Christmas season, we're going to confront your murderous and adulterous hearts, and then we're going to talk about adultery and divorce. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and so as I thought about this though, I, I gotta be honest, the, I have the same sentiment and, and, and when, I, when I thought about the, the, the reality of these messages in light of uh, the Christmas season, my first response was that. But I think that that's our response because we too often have, have consumed our minds with really the world's perspective on Christmas. Right? I lived that Christmas for years before I came to faith in Christ. It's the the way that that people live around this season where, where, where they just try to put up decorations and lights to make everything look merry and bright on the outside and try to ignore the harsh reality of a humanity that's wrestling with darkness and enduring the harsh consequences of sin and death. But the profound story of Christmas in God's word, the thing that brings me such deep encouragement is that Jesus didn't come just to put up decorations and lights and give us the best presents. He came to enter into the darkness of our world. He came to bring the light of the gospel to humanity struggling and wrestling with sin. He came to offer new life in a new kingdom with a new culture. A culture that, that it is intended in, in God's, um, in faithfulness to God by abiding in Christ to, to find a culture marked by freedom from sin and death. A culture where redemption can bring healing to all of the consequences of sin. whether chosen or a result of someone else's choice or choices. See, dealing with these kind of topics in the Sermon on the Mount shouldn't be awkward around Christmas because they align with the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus, who was called Emmanuel, God with us, is, he doesn't call you to hide your sin and struggle behind the lights of Christmas and act like everything is okay. He actually calls you out. He calls out your darkness into his glorious light. And Christmas is about a savior who is the light of the world and comes to redeem. And today, God wants to shine the light of his redemption and hope and goodness and mercy and compassion right into the subject of marriage and divorce and adultery. And so Matthew five thirty-one through 32 is the passage. Look at it with me. Jesus says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce. It's a a major issue in our culture. Some stats I read this week that sort of frame this up. The U.S. divorce rate is the third highest in the world, which if you're um, a believer in God's uh, definition of marriage, you can understand that there's something very flawed in the U.S. culture that would allow that to be a reality. The um, uh, current divorce rate in the U.S. is 2.3 persons per 1,000 people so frequent. And the average marriage lasts seven to eight years. Currently, that's what the stats show. And uh, in this current, like last five years, divorces among people aged 50 plus are on the rise. And the most common reasons for divorce are conflict, lack of commitment, and adultery. And here's this interesting stat. Most Americans who file for divorce do so between January and March, which means talking about it in December is actually insanely appropriate and timely. (laughs) It's way better than like, I guess, the beginning of April. Um, Just the impact in this room is heavy for me standing up and talking about this subject. The impact in this room, many of you, just like me, grew up in a family that maybe early or at some point in your life, your parents got divorced and you've had to live with the reality of that and the ramifications of that and they differ it's on a continuum certainly but it's still at any level painful some of you have experienced the pain of divorce and some of you have navigated that in a maybe a right biblical way and some of you maybe approach that with no understanding of the gospel but still the ramifications of it are real Some of you are struggling right now, right in the midst of marriage, and you're wrestling with the reality of, is it okay for me to even think about this subject of divorce, or is it not, and how do I do that, and and then dealing with sometimes the awkward stigma that plays out in the church around this subject, when Jesus talks about it right here, plainly and clearly. Man, how do we navigate this? Jesus enters right into the darkness on this, with his truth on this subject. And in this passage, let me just make this clear from the very beginning. Sort of overarching this conversation is this. Jesus is not rushing to divorce. He's not in any way. Even in giving grounds for it, he's not rushing to it. In verse 31, what Jesus is referring back to is Deuteronomy 24 verse one. And it's there where the law states in Deuteronomy 24 one that a man can divorce his wife because he has found some indecency in her. But he must give her a certificate of divorce and back in Deuteronomy 24, it says that if she becomes another man's wife and is divorced again, the original husband cannot remarry her. And so, into the a right understanding of this because Jesus is speaking this into a, not just a a general culture but also into the Jewish sort of religious culture i was i was helped by da carson's comments on this he said this double restriction both of giving a certificate of divorce and not moving back to remarriage, he says right there, he says the double restriction, this certificate and the prohibition of remarriage discouraged hasty divorces. There's a discouragement of this. Leon Morris in his commentary talked about the certificate that Jesus refers to here. And he says, this was a bill of divorce was a protection for the woman. A capricious husband could not drive her from his home and afterward claim that she was still his wife. He must give her the document that set out her right to marry someone else. So what I want you to see from the beginning is that in the Old Testament law, even all the way back in Deuteronomy, God was protecting marriage and the sanctity of it. And he was also protecting women who at that point in history had very little rights. It's an amazing picture of his compassion and love. But Jewish leaders had been abusing this command. So what Jewish leaders were doing is some schools of Jewish thought literally permitted a man to divorce his wife if she uh, spoiled his dinner. You could come up with anything that, that, would, that could justify that. And these men in a culture where um, a single woman would have struggled, particularly if kids would have been involved in a tremendous level and just left them needy. And into this chaos, Jesus declares his authority over the subject of marriage and clarifies the exception where divorce is allowable. So, but before, before I break this down any further, what we have to be careful of in this subject and in so many other subjects biblically is to try to gain an understanding of what an individual passage is saying, independent of the greater context of what scripture says, right? Right? So if you sit here and this is the only place that you consult in regards to divorce, it's not going to get you to the right place. See, we have to rightly understand and apply this passage by placing it within the larger context of what the Bible teaches about marriage, right? It's the only healthy way to approach this topic. So when you put this passage in the larger context, here's the big move here's the sort of overarching thing I want us to hear. Affirm God's intention for marriage, not his exception. And so I want to deal with this subject tenderly. And the only way that I can do that is by first um, giving us an overview of of the, the goodness that God intended and his sort of plan and purpose in marriage. And so the first point that I want to uh, take in this message is commit to God's intention for marriage. But, but before we talk about divorce, we, we have to first affirm God's intention for marriage. We have to affirm God's intention for marriage and, conf- and commit to it. There is, there's a breadth church of teaching about marriage Here's some of my uh, my favorite kind of go-to passages whenever I'm teaching on the subject of marriage and I would encourage you to have these and know these. I look at this Genesis 2:22 through 25 where in the first place, I mean that that's pretty early in the Bible. Um, That's chapter two. God begins to give his picture of marriage. Malachi 2.16 talks about um, how God hates divorce. Matthew 19, three through nine. um, God, uh, Christ is actually talking about marriage and he gives even more fuller explanation of his convictions about marriage and then talks about the subject of adultery and divorce. Ephesians 5.22 through 33 is this glorious and insanely challenging passage about uh, what it means to be a husband and a wife in, in a godly marriage. Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 do the same thing as Ephesians. And then 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 also talks and gives specific instruction about God's intention and heart for marriage. Start here. Start here. We can't talk about the exception until we affirm God's intention you need to, I don't care whether you are, are thinking about marriage in the future, are currently married, or, 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 or whatever the situation might be for you. You have to know his intention for marriage and submit to his intention. I'm going to be brief and I'm going to give some overview points here. But what I want to, um, what I want you to know is as I was thinking about this, I, I remembered that in 2021, I did a, a two-part series called Marriage Maintenance. And many of you may have been around uh, of our church in that um, season. And it's available at the Church Center app and the Sunday Connect page. And um, also on our website, you can always search the sermon archives and a more full teaching on the subject of marriage is there. And I would encourage you to pursue that if you feel like I'm still learning about God's intention for marriage. But but just for the sake of this message to to get a frame around what we're talking about, let me give two exhortations. One, establish a God-centered perspective on marriage. Marriage was established by God. It was his idea. Any perspective on marriage is going to be flawed in any direction we go, any interpretation of an individual passage will be flawed if we don't have God's perspective first on marriage. In Mark 10, what I love about what Jesus does when he talks about marriage is when he talks about marriage, when he starts to introduce it. He, he says, from the beginning of creation, God, before he ever talks about the context of marriage, he starts with, this is God's perspective from the very beginning. The idea of marriage was always intended to be a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, intended for life. It was established in Eden in Genesis 2 between Adam and Eve. And there are two core foundational covenant relationships that God's heart is for them to extend one for eternity, and one through life. His covenant relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ is for eternity. That's the basis of our security, our foundation. And then out of that foundation, he is calling many, not all, but many, to engage in marriage for life. And there's many purposes there. July 8th, 2000 was the, the moment for me I stood before God and some other witnesses and my knees were shaking because I was nervous um, because I just felt so much compassion for Amy, like choosing to marry me. And, uh, and it was an awesome day and I committed um, in a covenant relationship to be married to my wife for a lifetime. We made a covenant. Now listen, my perspective on that covenant was informed by my covenant relationship with God. Any one of you who's aspiring to marriage, any young person in this room who's thinking about their future, it starts with security in a covenant relationship with God. And out of that, we made a promise to each other. And you learn in marriage this truth that covenant relationship between you and God has way more stability because you're messed up, he's perfect. You move into a covenant relationship with another person, it's two messed up people who oftentimes don't want to admit that they're messed up. Let's be honest. And navigating this requires everything that this, this, this vertical covenant relationship is offering. And we're both broken and flawed, and we realized in early in marriage that, that, that marriage is only a blessing when we share a God-centered perspective on marriage. And my wife and our relationship presses me all the time to for my heart to be formed. I'm first, my vertical covenant relationship with Jesus. If there's not security there, you won't find security here. Not in any relationship, not a dating relationship, not an engagement, not a marriage, not anything. Covenant relationship with marriage is strengthened when my covenant relationship with God is strong. God first, marriage second. Grow your marriage by growing your relationship with God so you have a God centered perspective on marriage. That's first. Second is follow God's plan. Follow God's plan for marriage. Leading up to marriage, for those of you in that place, we don't just sort of like casually just be like, yeah, I kind of like you, let's get married. It's not supposed to be this sort of casual, I just sort of walked into it sort of thing. It says, a man and a woman leave their family and the two shall become one flesh. It's purposeful, it's purposeful. Follow God's plan leading up to marriage. Get counsel on your relationship from the church. Listen carefully to the people around you that have perspective on that that you might not have yet or because of all the emotions and the feelings you're not going to have clarity on. Don't pursue oneness before you enter into a covenant of marriage. Don't let anyone have oneness with you until they're ready to commit fully. Don't have sex, don't live together, don't join bank accounts, don't act like you're one when you have not entered into the covenant relationship of marriage. Oneness should be pursued purposefully. We can't make decisions based on our feelings or our and our heart, they can't be trusted. We want good counsel around us. And if you've if you failed in any way in that, like I know often we do, listen, God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, don't just be like, oh, I already screwed up. God can redeem any broken thing, any broken thing, and bring mercy and compassion to that. But we wanna follow God's plan and then, once in marriage, we want to follow God's plan in marriage. After marriage, you're, you're no longer two, but one flesh. And so, to live like that requires a pursuit of oneness. Here are five things I talk about when I talk about sort of the glues of oneness or the commitments of oneness. One, one is spiritual growth, that there's a commitment to saying, hey, we want God's perspective on every aspect of our marriage. That's ultimately spiritual growth, and I know that for me to be the husband that I want to be, my wife knows that for her to be the wife that God intended her to be, we have to first be growing spiritually in our vertical covenant relationship. Then, second, romance. Both a romance that's pursued as a a, a reality of friendship, but then also manifest itself in ways that that person is the one that I love and pursue in that way also. Thirdly, financial responsibility. Because as one, we want to steward well together the gifts that God's given us and one big part of that is financial responsibility. For forgiveness. Understanding how to cover over the broken places deeply and fully and completely. And five, communication, both honesty, forthright communication, and kindness and love in the way that we communicate. These are glues that bind you together as one. And let me just say from the outset we're so committed to these realities of marriage that if these are places in your relationship where you are struggling, don't struggle alone in the kingdom of God. Don't struggle alone. Come get counsel. Maybe from somebody in your community group or from a trusted uh, follower of Christ. Uh, Come and get counsel to help you navigate through the situation that you're in that might be difficult. But overall, protect the covenant. Prioritize your marriage over every other relationship except for God himself. Hear and listen and consider how some of the heart of what Jesus has been communicating in the Sermon on the Mount could speak directly to your marriage, address like we talked about the last two weeks, the heart of anger and lust, which certainly play themselves in to the subject of marriage. Follow God's plan leading up to and in marriage. Commit to God's intention for marriage. Okay, so with that said, now let's let's come to this passage and address it here it is second point consider the exception in light of kingdom culture What Jesus is playing out here what he's communicating in these two verses is this He's acknowledging and I don't believe he's acknowledging this in such a way that he's like oh let's just move quickly to divorce He's acknowledging that there are situations where a covenant can be or has been abandoned to a degree where where divorce is reluctantly allowed because one or both people, because of the hardness of their hearts, have allowed sin to break down the covenant to a degree where the other now has an option to walk forward based on the reality of what is. So, so there, is, there is an allowance here scripturally that we have to wrestle with. Now, Jesus is not encouraging to us to rush to divorce or commanding divorce in any way in this passage. I've seen people come and try to defend some such flawed conclusions by by sort of believing that this gives permission to sort of rush to or command even. In this context, what Jesus is saying is that divorce is an option on the grounds of sexual immorality. And sexual immorality refers to an established pattern of improper sexual relations outside of marriage. Now, even within this, we we have to recognize the passage we just taught on last week. The previous passage on lust said that if you look at someone with lustful intent in your heart, then that's adultery. And if that reality of adultery was brought to this passage and we believe that Jesus was giving permission or rushing us towards divorce, so many marriages would be at risk because Jesus talked about the reality of, of lust being at, at, at the person's, a part of a person's heart, and to understand that even lustful intent towards another is the category of adultery. So, so Jesus is not advocating freedom to move to divorce at any confession of lustful intent. I don't believe that in any way. But, but here's the problem. And, and I don't want, because, because listen, I love you. I want to be so careful here that I don't just like try to give this a definition of sexual immorality that that sort of brushes over the profound variables and nuances around that subject and the way it plays out in the context of marriage. Friends, I've seen so many different levels of the reality of sexual immorality in the context of a marriage. And so I'm just gonna say this, those situations require careful biblical counsel. And, and I agree with um, Leon Morris at this point when he's talking about, and he's sort of, sort of summarizing what Jesus is and isn't communicating in this passage. Here's what he says. Against such a background, Jesus calls on people to appreciate the true meaning and solemnity of marriage we should bear in mind that he is laying down great principles that should guide conduct. He is not making laws or giving a precise list of occasions when divorce might take place. So into this, you're left at this place when you wrestle with the subject biblically that you go, okay, there there is an allowance being given, but there clearly is a context of the greater picture of marriage. And then not just that, but you have divorce within the context of marriage. And then you have marriage only can be understood rightly within the larger context of the gospel and kingdom culture, right? And we have to orient it there. It's an only safe place to deal with the subject. And so let me suggest just if we, if we stand back a bit and look at kingdom culture, even what we've learned so far in the Sermon on the Mount, and let's bring that to bear on this subject. And so I believe there's some kingdom culture principles to follow when talking about the subjects of divorce in marriage. Here they are first, first submit to God, first submit to God. If there's not a submission to God, I have no ability to have a conversation with people about the subject of marriage or divorce. Nothing that's going to make sense and nothing that's going to be honoring to the heart of God if we haven't yet submitted to God. There has to be a view on marriage that is um, under God's perspective, like I already talked about. And you have to have in the larger confines of kingdom culture, a commitment to redemption and restoration. Second, this submit to the church for counsel. So if you, if you place the subject within the bigger in light of kingdom culture, you you have to come to the church with things that matter this much in each individual situation. Hear me. Each individual situation needs individual counsel to discern biblical principles and wisdom in those situations. There's so much at stake though, church. And when you're wrestling through these issues, don't go alone. Don't go alone. Submit to the church for counsel. Then thirdly, if we understand this in the bigger context of kingdom culture, we're going to strive for forgiveness, for reconciliation and restoration. We are, we are, we are at every point. Then on top of that, we're going to pray for gospel transformation when it seems as though there's nothing else I can do in my striving in my striving in God's power informed by the gospel, I can get to a point where I'm just like, God, I just need you to transform this. Then with counsel submitted to God, striving for those things, praying for gospel transformation, there are circumstances and situations where there is an allowance for divorce with godly grief, with godly grief. Listen, listen, listen. The consequences of divorce are real for each person involved and for the children if the couple has children. And grief, hear me, not just grief in a moment, but grief over time I don't want, in the midst of trying to see God form kingdom culture in our church, I don't want us to create these sort of like, oh wow, if you if you get, if you just navigate this season, then 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 you'll know, just it'll be great. It's not the ramifications of brokenness in relationship. If that's the reality and it's been the reality because of something that's played out in the past or you're currently weighed down by the struggle and the difficulty of marriage and you don't know where it's headed or, or, or where you're a child in a situation where your parents have gotten divorced, there is godly grief. And I want us to have a space in community here for us to be able to express that openly and honestly and honestly so it can be godly grief, so we can walk through it in a redemptive way. See, Jesus allows divorce in certain situations. And so if you've walked this path and you've respected kingdom culture and you've strived for peace and grace and reconciliation, and if the, if the decisions that another made was not your heart or your desire and divorce has now played out in your life, I want you to hear you are not lesser than any other believer. God forgive the church for some of the stigma we've put over people. You've experienced, some of you have experienced sin of another person in a really unfortunate and painful way. And it would break my heart that you would leave here feeling like, oh man, just one of those people who got divorced. If you've walked through it in a God-honoring way, please hear me. There's no label that I will allow to be placed over your life. Now, if you were a perpetrator of sexual immorality or a perpetrator of unbiblical divorce and you have sort of this hard defensive heart towards your sin and you're minimizing or excusing your actions, Listen, I'm concerned about your vertical relationship with Jesus. And you've got to come get that right before we can explore. I need to walk you that direction before we can explore any aspect of marriage or divorce. But if you're repentant and contrite and teachable and seek kingdom culture with a humble attitude, hear me, you were forgiven, you were cleansed and made righteous by Jesus Christ. Now at this point, as I was prepping the message this week, I had originally planned just to sort of break down sort of how we give counsel in different sort of situations in regards to adultery and divorce when it's happened in people's lives. And in over 18 years of full-time ministry, I've seen all types of situations I've entered right into situations where people are married and now adultery has occurred or biblical divorce and now the person's single or unbiblical divorce and the person's single now and trying to figure out what is permissible and right and good. I've counseled people that are biblically divorced and now remarried or unbiblically divorced and remarried and trying to figure out how to navigate all that's played out in their life. And I could give you an overview of every situation. But as I set that up and as I had in my message, literally yesterday, I came to it and I just, I was convicted by the reality that for me to try to give broad brush strokes to how we would counsel a situation like that is honestly, I was convicted by the fact that that would be ignorant to the complexity of those individual situations. And it might move too quickly through the pain involved in those situations. Each situation when you're navigating these things requires time. It requires discernment and it requires careful biblical counsel, both to love well and to lead well. And so as I thought longer about this, here's what I realized. I come back to this again and again, anywhere. um, And anytime I talk about the subject of divorce and marriage I don't have. I don't know a situation where where I have counseled or God's words been brought to bear on a marriage that's in crisis or somebody navigating through these topics. I've never seen. Um, Uh, the the counsel of God's word produce change or produce really any gospel fruit unless the person is first committed to live their lives in light of kingdom culture. And so why don't we do this instead of trying to break down all the categories? Let's look back at what we've already learned in the Sermon on the Mount and let's bring that And let's consider the ways that it might apply to the subject that Jesus is talking about in verse 31. Because remember, he didn't start with this passage, he started well before that. Just look back with me. Look back at the beginning of of chapter five, where Jesus starts by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What would the conversation about marriage and divorce look like if both people involved in a relationship were like, We're poor in spirit? We don't have it all figured out. We're broken and needy for Jesus. Imagine what could be restored if two people just started there. Not to mention, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn over your own sin and mourn over the sin that's been perpetrated against you. Imagine what could happen. The Bible, Jesus says that you'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek not believing that you have it all figured out, believing that everyone is both a victim and a victimizer, that everyone is both a sufferer and a sinner. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We could use that in the subject of marriage and divorce. Blessed are the merciful. I don't think that's gonna leave you rushing in a direction of divorce. Blessed are the pure in heart. I wanna be right, God. Blessed are the peacemakers, of course. Blessed are those who are persecuted, sometimes feeling the pain of that. Then rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, like this this confidence in God. And then uh, verses 13 through 16, like to be the salt of the earth and light of the world and and to say in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Stop thinking about others as people outside of your home. Start by thinking about the people that are within your home and live out, compelled by the the desire to be the salt of the earth and light to the world, even when it's dark, to realize that Jesus is the only one that can fulfill the law and know that in his call of the law and the prophets to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that you can only do that in Christ. And let our heart around this subject be informed first by our desperate need for Jesus. And then to enter into the subject of anger and realize how that subject tears right at the fabric of a covenant relationship and recognize our brokenness in that and go, God, would you please help me to realize my anger and the way it's dividing? And to say that I'm not going to offer my gift at the altar. And there remember that your spouse has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother there, but let's just replace it with spouse and then come and offer your gift. And then to consider lust and to recognize that I don't think it's a coincidence that God talked about anger and then lust and then he talks about divorce and adultery. When kingdom culture, when kingdom culture is being embraced and lived out by the grace of God, then and only then are you ready to respond to this passage. Because into that kingdom culture, you'll submit to God and you'll submit to the church for counsel and you'll strive for forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. And you'll pray for gospel transformation. And then, carefully, reluctantly, there's an allowance for divorce with godly grief. God can redeem. There's a tension in this subject because I know without question that God can redeem and restore any human relationship. But the reality is, is that sometimes there's one pulling in a direction and the other is not. And when that gets to a certain point, there is a gracious allowance from God in this situation. But we only walk towards that if we're rightly living within, in light of kingdom culture, we only walk through that, towards that in in, with reluctance, with counsel, with care, and with hoping and praying that God can do a miracle. and So into this subject, I just want you to know that I know in this room are people who are right there. And I just want you to know that, I want you to know here at at our church, like what I want you to hear is, I just want you to hear that you're loved. God knows what you're carrying. God knows what you're walking through. God knows what some of you are trying to justify. And I want you to know that you will find at our church an advocacy that both will not give any room or space or justification for unrepentant sin. At the same time, wants to walk tenderly through the pain and the suffering and the struggle and the sin that's led to the situation you're in. For those of you who have been divorced and are trying to navigate what's next, I want you to know that we wanna walk with you. And we see the struggle. We've got people in our church who I love dearly who are navigating the complexity of children and and blended marriages and all of the sort of ramifications that bring godly grief. Sometimes a decision completely outside of their control. And then some who I've seen model so beautifully an acknowledgement that the move to divorce was not righteous, not right, not in light of kingdom culture. And I've seen them come with contrition and with confession and with meekness. And I've come see God do beautiful, beautiful things in their heart. The hope never ends when the gospel can still be applied to a situation. And I just want you to hear my heart. Consider the exception in light of kingdom culture. As I was thinking about this subject, I was reminded of the fact that I'm so thankful that God has not established a kingdom where he moves towards divorce quickly. It's not his character, and and if we rightly understand the subject of adultery, the subject of adultery in the Old Testament was, was a word that God used to talk about his people's betrayal of their covenant relationship with God. He referred to it as adultery. Praise God that he does not rush to divorce us when we are unfaithful. (laughs) Thank God for his faithfulness in mercy and in love and in his commitment to reconciliation. And so if I want to speak anything into this subject, let each of us strive to reflect the same spirit towards all relationships in the kingdom of God. That's the end that God wants us to carry from this subject. Even as we have to acknowledge and deal with the exception. Let's pray. God, this subject I know speaks right into the deep brokenness that some carry. God, I think to rightly understand the subject, even in light of last week's passage, I have to be honest that all of us face the reality that our marriages require deep degrees of forgiveness and reconciliation and mercy and compassion. We cannot have vibrant, flourishing relationships. We cannot have vibrant, flourishing households without rightly acknowledging our desperate need for kingdom culture to saturate into every part of our life and heart and relationships. God, restore. Give us first a deep sense of our relationship with you and the, and the beauty of our covenant relationship and the example that you set for us. Let us not look to the world. Let us not look to the brokenness. Let us first look to you. And so, God, I'm asking that you would work and meet some people in this room. And, God, many I know, even their stories by name. As I've considered this topic this week, my heart has been grieved alongside them. But Father, I pray that the culture of this church reflect your word and I pray that we would walk with hope, that we would walk with confidence, that we would walk with faithfulness alongside each other, regardless of what the consequences of sin and death throw at us. And we would find ourselves rooted in your unchanging nature. And God, in that, we can rejoice. And in that, we can have hope. And in that, we can even have joy, even in the deepest, darkest, most difficult realities. So God, I pray that you'd lead us in that. It's in your name we pray, amen.